have a distinctive life with one another, and we've spent, here we go, uh, we've spent some time um, kind of breaking down what that distinctive life of this new society of people who have been made new in Christ has been uh, for the last few weeks, and then and then the last couple weeks, specifically, we've been talking about these new relationships, what it looks like for us to relate uh, to one another within this new society. Okay, so we talked about marriage, we talked about uh, parents and children, last week we talked uh, slaves and masters, um, and this week we're talking about, and, and this is taken from, from John Stott's commentary, but he says one more uh, relationship that Paul is going to detail for us in the book um, but it's, it's maybe not one that we're expecting because it's a relationship of opposition or hostility, okay? And that is uh, the relationship or the topic of spiritual warfare. Um, you want to go to the next slide for me? Here we go. Um, so we're talking about spiritual warfare today, right? Paul's going to talk about the armor of God. This is kind of a famous passage um, in, in the book of, in, of Ephesians. And a lot of people have heard this one before. But before we jump into it, I realize like this is maybe just kind of like a weird topic for us to talk about today. Like we're, we live in a very, uh, a very materialistic society, one that likes to be able to kind of quantify or put a name to things in, in terms of what we can see. And so the idea of spiritual warfare um, is like a little weird, right? The idea of devils or demons, it just seems, it makes me a little uncomfortable and just something like we know it's in the Bible if, we, if we've grown up reading it, but maybe we're just like, you know, like, let's just sidestep some of those weird passages sometimes. Um, and, and, and actually, uh, a lot of people have been hurt, maybe, by deliverance ministries or, or different things like that, right? Like, that's not always actually worked out um, for people's benefit. So it's maybe one we're a little uncomfortable with for that reason. And in fact, including, too, this is a 2009 uh, Barna poll, so this is 10 years old, so it could, could have changed either way, I guess. But 4 in 10 Christians strongly agree with the statement that the devil is not a living being but a symbol of evil right so we we we're like maybe tempted to read some of these passages as like maybe more symbolic or metaphorical um, and to not really uh, kind of deal with it in the way that the bible's talking about it as if it's like a real reality even though it's one that's kind of behind the scenes one that we can't really sense um um, can we go to the next slide um so um, Charles Taylor, he's, he's a, a philosopher. He talks about this in this book, A Secular Age, um, this idea of enchanted versus disenchanted worlds, okay? And so uh, he kind of says, we've moved from being an enchanted world to being one that's disenchanted. So if you live in an, an enchanted world, this is a world that, you know, some people would for sure say this is the world of the Bible or, or the world of the ancients. It's a world filled with spirits and um, the supernatural and magic and uh, demons and the devil fit well into this world, right? It, it, it doesn't seem like if that's the world you grew up in that, that this concept would, would, would feel very at home for you. Um, but we live in a disenchanted society, right? This is one where, where everything gets explained by science, right? It, it's explained by being able to measure and observe it. And that's a world that like the devil and demons don't fit into quite as easily, right? Um, and so we look at the ancients a lot of times and we think, well, you know, this is a group of people that, that you know, maybe weren't as developed as we are as a society and maybe they uh, didn't have as, as much ability to, to track how, um, you know, something bad, some bad outcome could actually be explained in a more scientific way. And so um, they would, of course, maybe attribute these things to unseen forces, but we're kind of smart enough now to realize that that's not the case. And so um, we kind of explain uh, things like, 
ancient, it's what we call demons. We, we call things like spiritual beings that would propagate evil just forces of economic oppression, maybe. That's a way that we, we tend to talk about it. Um, or systems of race and gender inequality, right? We would, we would say this seems to have like a malevolent effect on a society. And we can tell it's not really, you know, we, we can kind of observe it through sociology, right? Or we would look at demon possession and we would say this is actually just mental illness, Right? This is, this is, and our answer to that is you know, a prescription and a good therapist, not an exorcism. Right? That's kind of how we are trained to think about this stuff. Um, and, and, and so if we can explain anything, we would rather explain stuff materially or sociologically. Right? That's our preference in this society. Okay? Um, you can go to the next slide. Um, so uh, Richard Beck is an author uh, of, a, of a book called um, old, uh, Reviving Old Scratch. It's a book about uh, demons, and he has this really good, this really arresting analogy in the book. I really think, think it's a helpful one. So he talks about how in every, you guys have all seen Scooby-Doo, right? I, I guess I feel like I have to ask that question now, because Scooby-Doo is maybe not as popular for some, from people growing up, but um, Scooby-Doo, right? Every episode of Scooby-Doo basically has the same format. Um, at the beginning of the episode, um, you have this, you know, this you know, this mummy or this ghost that's, you know, bothering some people. And so they call in Scooby-Doo and his pals and they come in and they, you know, they start to investigate. And by the end of the episode, they found out it's actually the greedy banker or like old man Jenkins or, you know, someone else, right? They, exp- they explain it away. It's not actually, it's not actually um, a, a ghost or a mummy or anything like that. It's actually just, a, you know, someone, some person who's in a mask, right? There's always this scene where they pull the mask off the person and, like, it was actually this person all along, right? Um, that's how every Scooby-Doo episode works. And Richard Beck says, we live in a society that likes to engage in what he calls Scooby-Dooification of the world, right? We, we moved as a society um, from a place that thought that we were pl- haunted, right? Or plagued by, you know, these evil spiritual forces. But we kind of get to, you know, to the point now where we realize it's actually just someone in a mask, right? Or, or it's, it, it's, some, it's our superstition, it's our fear that is getting brought out and is making us think um, that there was something else in play when really we can explain it pretty, um, pretty easily uh, through you know, observation or study. And so that's how we should deal with the problem too, right? Um, okay, so you can go to the next slide. I want to chart a bit of a middle path here, okay? Because um, for, on the one hand, I for sure agree with, with those of us who are disenchanted. Um, we know the role that like, material or sociological forces play in propagating evil into the world, for sure, right? Um, th- mental illness absolutely is in play for people who are plagued, right, by, by that stuff. And, and for sure, the, you know, some of these larger sociological forces maybe that we could attribute uh, to, to demons or the devil or whatever, you know, for sure those are in play as well. Okay, but, but those are also like all, a lot of times neutral forces, right? Those, are, those aren't necessarily things that have a, have a design to them. And I don't think it's that crazy that something could be working through some of those things that we explain, maybe a little more scientifically or sociologically, that they could be using that stuff to kind of pull in a like malevolent direction, right? I don't think that that's that, that crazy of a thing. And, and right, if we are, are willing to believe Jesus rose from the dead, right, then it's not that much of a leap to assume that there is something else in play uh, in the world as well. Um, 
And that's how the Bible views it, right? It views it as dark forces kind of uh, working uh, through other systems, right? Now, think, think about it like this. So, like, we talk often about forces that are working in the world, right? So, like, right now, um, we, we're, we talk about, like, the force of nationalism or white supremacy or fascism that is, like, kind of sweeping through parts of Europe and, and here in the United States, right? We're completely fine talking about that as if it's, like, a force, right, that seems to be acting in on people, Right? It seems to be kind of leading people in this direction that we can tell is like wrong or evil. Right? So we're, we're comfortable with that type of language. Um, and, and if we're comfortable with that type of language, I think we should feel comfortable talking about like forces, right? things that we can't necessarily uh, uh, quantify or study in the same way that we would study these other things, but that are still there. Right? Kind of like, kind of like the wind. Right? You can't see the wind, but you can see its effect blowing in a field of grass. Right? I think that's the way that we should view these spiritual forces that Paul is talking about here. Um, we don't have to be like spooky, but what if there is actually some, some force that intends to take over the direction of a movement or, or a people group or even occasionally, very rarely, people themselves um, with the intent of harming people, harming God's uh, work in the world and twisting it, making it look um, nothing like God intends in small and large ways, right? This force can act on us in corporate or big picture ways as well as in smaller individual ways and, and impacting us even as a church here, okay? Now, the, the Bible, and, and here in Ephesians in particular, uh, likes to call these things, they, they use the word for, for, for Satan or the devil, um, but they also like to use the word um, the rulers and the authorities. That's a phrase that you see get, that gets brought up several times um, in the Bible. And that's the word, we've actually seen it in the book of Ephesians already several times in chapter 1 um, and in chapter 3. And then Paul's going to explain them a little bit more here. And, and here's the thing, we're told frustratingly little about these forces. I know that if there's a whole like industry, if you, if you want to, you can definitely find lots of books. Some of them fiction, some of them not nonfiction, like you know, explaining, you know, spiritual warfare in these really grandiose terms and, and, and trying to, like, uh, you know, talk a lot about exorcisms or a lot about di- these different things. And we're, we're actually told a lot less about um, spiritual warfare in the Bible than we might, you know, hope, right? It's, we're told frustratingly little. They're actually usually just brought up in kind of, like, passing references. So Paul assumes their reality. He assumes that these forces are, are acting, are moving on us in certain ways, but he doesn't spend as much time detailing what that actually looks like as we might hope, okay? And so we're going to spend a little bit of time uh, diving into these rulers and authorities today um, in our passage, right? But the main point I want to focus on is what Paul says about how, what we're supposed to do in response to them, okay? So that's kind of where we're at today, and our passage starts right here, Ephesians 6, uh, 10 to 12. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Now that phrase, like I said, rulers and authorities or powers and authorities will sometimes be um, translated. Paul uses it several times. We see Jesus kind of use the phrase as well. It's a pretty ambiguous phrase. Um, and, and honestly, like, there are times where it seems like it, you know, they might have in mind more, like, uh, political or governmental authorities. In this passage, for sure, though, Paul is saying, 
regardless of if they're working through some of those actual rulers and authorities, he identifies them as not being flesh and blood, right? So maybe they're working through them, but the, the, the evil behind that is for sure not something that is human. It's, it's subhuman in, in a way. Um, and so, um, so it may manifest in people, but we're not supposed to locate. I think this is really good, actually. This is really profound and, and helpful for us. We're not supposed to locate uh, the evil. We're not supposed to locate our opposition as Christians in human, in human uh, institutions or humans themselves, right? That's what Paul is trying to get us to not do. And I think that's important because like, we're really good at, you know, quote-unquote, demonizing people, right? Like, that's something we, we like to do. We like to kind of l- locate like, our r- true evil opposition on a group of people and like to blame them as if that's our problem. If you don't believe me that that's something we like to do, just r- listen to a political podcast just for five minutes, right? And you'll, you'll see already that we just do this naturally very well. We, we like to, to kind of um, bring down the problems in the world and blame a group, another group of people for them. And so we turn everything into a battle with some group of people that we've identified as the problem, as the true um, ones who are bringing evil into the world. We do this in large ways. We do it in small ways, too, a lot of times. We like to tend different groups of, or different people in our lives who maybe are opposed to us or hostile toward us, right? And so what we do is we kind of blame them as the problem. Paul isn't going to let us do that, though, okay? Because he's going to say this is kind of misdirection, right? That to, to view the world in that way is, is, you can go back to the last slide, this is kind of misdirection, Okay, because um, we shouldn't be viewing this other gr- this group of people as evil ones, right? We're supposed to view um, the evil that's coming into the world, at least partially, into these these forces that we can't see and we don't really know how they're working, but we can assume that they're there and working. And so when we do that, we don't have to fall into the trap of making war against other groups, okay? That's actually, I think, what the intent of these rulers and authorities of, of the devil is, is to get us to, 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 to not understand the way in which they're working and to locate evil onto another group of people. And, and when... when and I'm not saying that, like, justice, right, or, like, people, their consequences for what they do doesn't matter. We shouldn't um, take steps to, to hold people accountable for their evil actions. But, but like, the Bible is a book of, of grace, right? The Bible is a book of, of forgiveness. And when we are not falling into the trap all the time of viewing other people as evil, then we can actually, like, let that grace and forgiveness work through us in really important ways, right? But it's hard to do that when we are viewing a group of people as, you know, as the evil ones in the world, right? So when we, when we view the world this way, as Paul says, then we can actually be people of grace and forgiveness in a way that we can't be if we don't, okay? Let's go to the next slide here, verse 13. Um, Paul says, there, he continues on, therefore, okay, in response to the fact that there is some struggle going on against these forces in the world, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you've done everything to stand. Okay? So he, he's going to bring our attention to the fact that there's this conflict, there's a struggle going on. We don't really have much of a choice if we follow Jesus, but to engage in it. Okay? And so the response to that is to put on uh, this armor of God. Now, I'll, I'll, we'll go through all each of these pieces of armor in just a second, but I want to make a, a quick note. Um, Paul you know, by bringing up this struggle and then explaining how to fight that in, in, in spiritual terms, we'll see, means that he is saying that we don't fight this battle, like, with actual weapons, right? If he wanted us to fight it in that way, he would have told us that. But that's not what he says, okay? This is war, 
And he compares our weapons to real weapons. So he'll talk about like specific parts of armor or even a sword or a shield. Um, but but he's, notice he's not saying we fight this war with actual weapons. He's just comparing them to them. This isn't a war fought with tanks or guns and missiles. Okay. And because this isn't a war with other groups of people, he's been very specific in that, then Christians should be willing to fight in a different way than how we tend to view warfare or conflict in this world today. Right? We need to be really careful to frame real wars with spiritual warfare. And anytime we try to lump the two together, I think we have a bit of a problem. And so and the point here that I'm trying to make is that Paul is saying that almost, almost every, almost tr- truly following Christ almost always involves abstaining from violence, right? The way to follow Christ, the way to fight this struggle is to not fight with actual weapons, but it's to fight with the way that Paul specifically lines out here for us, okay? All right, let's get into, um, let's get into the passage here. So verses 14 and 15. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. All right, so let's, let's just break all these down because we for sure don't use this type of like armor today. So it kind of helps to understand what Paul is talking about. So he starts out with the belt of truth. All right, this is like a weird one to translate, but it, okay, so you would wear skirts in your fighting in, in Roman times. I know this seems very counterintuitive to us, right? But they would wear these skirts and they were really long and flowy. And so to help hold them up, you would like kind of tuck them under your belt. As I understand it, you would use this belt to kind of tuck your skirt so that you could run better, right? So you're not hindered by this kind of long, flowy thing, right? Women in the room are like, yeah, that that sounds like that would be helpful um, if I were running around fighting some people when I'm wearing a dress, okay? So that's a part of the armor. So um, the point is that the truth of Christ, the truth of his death and his resurrection specifically allow us to kind of run unhindered into this battle, right? When we, when we are tucking everything under that belt, we can kind of run into battle un, unhindered, okay? Because we have this, this truth that is there for us. Now think about how, like, how crippling it is to be kind of sieged by untruth or, or things that conflict our hearts and mind because we, we don't know what's true, right? That can be really debilitating and it's for sure going to make our struggle um, with these forces that Paul's identifying more difficult if we, are, if we can't even like, settle in on what is true for us, right? At least, at least these things that are super important. Now you can also read the, the idea of belt of truth, you know, some scholars will point out, as like integrity, right? As... as um, sincerity of heart. And then, so for us to, to be sincere of heart or have to integrity, to have truth around our waist means that we are not tossed and turned around by other desires or we're not seeking to win corruptly, to try and win the war uh, the way that the, the, that the spiritual forces against us do, to not try to play that game against us, okay? You can for sure uh, read it as that as well. The breastplate of righteousness. Now, the word here in Greek, righteousness, Paul doesn't really talk about justification much in the book of Ephesians, but in other books, in other letters that he wrote, he spends a lot of time talking about it. And in Greek, the word uh, for justification and righteousness is, is the same type of word, right? Dikaios. So you have all these different words like justification and righteousness that come from the same word. So what he's saying here is that we have like the breastplate of justification or righteousness that we have on our, on our chest. Okay? God's declaration that we are in the right, that we are right with God, and that we have been reconciled to him. Okay? That's what this breastplate uh, is saying. Okay? Now, Satan, in other passages, is identified as like the accuser. This is kind of his role, and, 
Again, we don't know a ton about Satan, but it almost seems like um, he filled this role as like the, the, the district attorney for God at one point, and he went, he went so crazy trying to accuse everybody that this kind of turned him into the enemy. All right, that's a very quick history of, of how it seems like the Bible talks about Satan. But his job, he's accusing us, right? He, he likes to accuse us. He's seeking to kind of displace our understanding of our relationship with God. And so um, he wants to make us feel like we're not right with God. We're not worthy of God. We're not righteous. We're not justified. Okay, so we, when we put on this breastplate, we have this knowledge that we are righteous by Christ's work and not by ours, by grace rather than works. And it reminds us that we are secure with God even when we're accused, right? We need this in order to go into battle. We need to know we are right with God in order to go do anything. And the breastplate of righteousness allows us to do that. And then next he says, your feet must be fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. So the shoes of the gospel, right? Um, these were like sandals more than, than actual shoes, but we translate it shoes. Um, these are... These are um, a readiness to go and preach the gospel, right? Like these are shoes that kind of take us and lead us out uh, to be willing to preach the gospel, Paul says. And, and most scholars think this is an allusion to Isaiah 52, 7. Um, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace and salvation, right? So the, the idea is that we need to be go, to ready to go preach the gospel because that's one of the things that Satan is trying to stop, right? He's trying to stop the spread of this kingdom, this gospel kingdom that God is creating. And we should be going out and preaching that. Um, there's a reason that this is part of Paul's list for this battle, because we need to be ready to go proclaim peace. It's kind of ironic, right, that we would talk about um, this struggle that we're a part of, even this warfare language, but we're actually trying to preach peace. Like, that's the whole point of what we're going out in this war. We're fighting to proclaim peace that has come and to try to promote peace among people who are part of this, right? And so this is the point, and, you know, this... Makes me uncomfortable sometimes reading this, if I'm being totally honest. But the full armor of God and the full battle with these rulers and authorities always includes the proclaiming the gospel. There's just no other way around that as much as, as this, is, this is something that can be, can be something we don't enjoy doing. It can make us uncomfortable to do. Um, it's something that maybe we, we even grow disillusioned of and we don't think the gospel is actually that good of news sometimes, right? We have to believe that this is good news um, or else we're going to really struggle. Let's go to the next, next part of the passage here. Verses 16 and 17. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith which, uh, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. All right, so starting out with, with the shield of faith. This is supposed to be like a really big shield, like something that kind of covers you from head to toe. And if I, if I remember this correctly, you would kind of stand in like a phalanx. You've, you've heard of this term before, phalanx, right? A group of uh, soldiers would stand in a line and they would use their shields to kind of create a wall. Okay, that, that's what a phalanx is in, in, the early, in early fighting time. It's like a really impenetrable wall of soldiers, basically. And they use these large shields and they stand right next to each other to create this wall. And these things are like several layers and they're used to put out arrows that are dipped in pitch and then lit on fire and shot at by the enemy, which is exactly what, um, what Paul says here. So, so basically what he's saying is this shield that we put in front of us of faith is like our lifeline, especially when these arrows are coming at us, these arrows of like uh, untruth or deception or lies that are, have the intent of like starting us on fire, apparently. Um, this shield of faith is the thing that like guards us in the midst of that. All right. Now, sometimes like 
like just let's pause and think about why this is such an important piece to the armor, right? Faith is not like a rejection of rationality, right? But it certainly functions that way when we feel displaced. We don't feel like there's anything that's true or makes sense. Faith is this thing that we can hold on to and say, listen, I believe that God is going to justify um, himself or vindicate himself to me. He's going to show me the truth, even though right now I don't feel like that's true. Faith is the thing that we, like, it's a clinging on. It's a holding on to God and, and not being willing to let go. And so when we don't understand, when we feel doubt, when, when we're attacked on all sides, um, through, faith, through faith we're able to rest in God uh, and in our shield, okay? So that's kind of what Paul is saying here. We, we, we hold on to this and it keeps us safe um, from these, these arrows of deception and, and untruth. Because like that for sure is something we're going to be tossed and turned about with, is, is doubt, is, 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 is lies. And if that's something that like you, you feel doubt, I feel doubt often. I, if, I, if I'm being totally honest, like doubt is something I feel about uh, my faith on, on a somewhat regular basis. And, and like holding on in faith in those times is like the only thing you can really do, Right? All right, helmet of salvation, it's, it's a helmet, it's on our head, protects our head. Head is the most important part of our body, right? Okay, that's pretty simple how that one works. Like our salvation is what kind of keeps us safe, right? It kind of keeps us uh, totally secure. And then finally, the sword of the spirit. And this is the one thing that's an offensive weapon. Everything else is defensive, okay? But this is the one part that's offensive. Um, and when used right, God has, God's word has the ability to just kind of cut through his enemies, Right? I, I don't know this for a fact, but I, I perhaps wonder if Paul had in mind um, you, the temptation narrative of Jesus. So Jesus goes out into the wilderness. Um, Satan comes and meets him there, and he tries to um, he tries to convince Jesus to kind of abandon his his mission as the Messiah uh, for these untruths or these half truths that he offers Jesus. And in every situation, Jesus's response is to quote some scripture at him, some some type of scripture that basically disarms what Satan is trying to say in that moment. Okay, that's how scripture functions for him. And so, and so you see the sense in which this, this, the, the word of God becomes an offensive weapon used to disarm the enemy. Now let's just, I want to pause and just like, let's talk about swords for a second. Swords are dangerous to people you're swinging them at, but if you're not, you know what you're doing, you, like they're dangerous to you too, right? Um, like it helps to know what you're doing when you're using a sword, um, and, and, a, and it has to, so it has to be used right. So if you're, if you're just swinging around with no plan, you might hurt some of the enemy, but you might cut your own arm off too, right? And so, and, and the scripture is like that too, I think. Like, I think it's important that we know how to use scripture. We know how to read our Bibles or else it's not going to be as effective as a weapon, if at all, um, that, that it's supposed to be. And in fact, we, might, we can end up hurting yourself if you don't know what you're doing when you're reading the Bible, okay? So it's important for us to take like sword lessons, right? It's important for us to like, you know, take the time to like understand how to read our Bible well. That comes through being in community, I think first and foremost, right? There's a reason that we spend time in scripture um, as, as, a, as a church every week, um, working through scripture together to try to understand what it's saying for us because that is when we're going to best use it, right? Um, and, and I would for sure implore you to like spend time studying scripture outside of that. You know, there are lots of resources that you can use to help you to understand scripture better to use it to its fullest potential, okay? So these are the, this is the armor of God, as, as Paul puts it, all right? So I want to move to a couple, just a couple points of application as we close here. Um, our first point of application is, first of all, we have to understand that there's a war going on us, but we can't give it more weight than it deserves either, 
All right? C.S. Lewis kind of has this famous uh, quote in the preface to his book, The Screwtape Letters, where he, he talks about how there are these two equal and opposite errors when it comes to uh, kind of approaching the devil or demons. And the first error is to, like, um, is to, like, pretend this is not a battle that doesn't exist, right? To just, just assume it's not there and to just kind of move on in life without it. That's probably where most of us are in the West here, right? We kind of talked about that a little bit at the beginning. That feels the most comfortable. Now, that's going to be a problem, C.S. Lewis is saying and Paul is saying here, okay? Um, and that's what the enemy wants for us, I think, right? I think like we, we talk, you know, if you hear stories about exorcisms or encounters with demons and stuff in other countries, sometimes you hear this from missionaries and you're like, that sounds crazy. I like, don't expect to ever encounter anything like that in my life here in America, right? And we're just a society that really views it that way. And I don't know this for a fact, but like I imagine the rulers and authorities would be very happy for us to continue, you know, um, believing and in, in, in ignorance that there's nothing else going on, right? That, that's, I think, a part of what they want us to do. And I think it's important for us as a church to understand that this is taking place here, all right? The other um, uh, error that C.S. Lewis talks about, though, is that we can totally overemphasize this battle, too. We can kind of make this, like, uh, the most important thing that we think is going on. And I've been, I've been a part of church context before where it's like, Every little bad thing that happens is Satan trying to ruin my day, and like just everything is like Satan's fault, right? And that's not a good way to look at it either. We we blame demons for everything, and then like we don't have to change, <laughs> right? Or we don't have to like uh, call other people around us to change too, because it's just the devil, and he's he's out there doing bad stuff for us. And it's actually kind of convenient in that world too, because we can blame the devil for everything. We don't have to blame ourselves anything, or we don't have to take responsibility for ourselves. We don't have to grow or change or anything. And I think that's a dangerous place to be as well, um, to, to completely overemphasize it, or to, to look, for, look for Satan in, in all these places where he's probably just not. And, and like, scripturally, like, th- that thing is just totally not brought up in a spiritual warfare context, all right? Now, against both of these, spiritual warfare is not you versus the devil, right? It's not some white-knuckled battle against the devil where you're trying to push back against him and he's trying to push back against you and God's just kind of hoping you're winning, you're going to win the battle, right? That's not what spiritual warfare is. Um, Actually, we know that this battle has already been won and it's kind of a two-stage victory. Um, You go to the next slide here. In Colossians uh, 2.15, this is another place where we see the rulers and authorities show up. Paul says... um, Right before this, he, he says that he's taken our sin, he's nailed it to the cross, he's canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, and having done that, he disarmed the powers and the authorities, and he made a public spectacle over them, triumphing over them uh, by the cross. Okay, So, in taking our sin on himself, Christ has set us free from the grip of these rulers and authorities, and, and in doing so, he somehow like removed their power. He, he, he def- it was, a, it was a, a defeat of them on the cross, Right? Again, it's an offhanded comment that Paul says. He just moves on to something else, and you're like, Paul, I wish you would have written a whole letter on this thing. That would have been really helpful, but he doesn't. He just kind of says it, and he moves on. Okay? And then, so go to the next slide here. This is actually earlier in the book of Ephesians. This is not in Ephesians. This is in Ephesians here. Okay? Paul says that, again, this is like an aside. This is a prayer he's praying at the beginning of the book. But he just mentions this victory uh, that Christ has won again. The power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand 
in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. Okay, so the first stage of this victory is the cross. The second stage, Paul says here, is in him being raised over all rule and authority as king over them. So the true ruler and authority is Christ himself. And that is shown in his resurrection. So the defeat happened on the cross and then his triumph over them as, as they're being, made their over, being made over them happens in the resurrection. Okay? Now, th- think of it like this, okay? Th- when we bring all this together, think of it like this. So, imagine you had this kingdom, and you had the king who was ruling from his throne in the capital city, and some rebels came in, and they were able to force him off his throne and kind of take over control of, of the country, okay? And then, uh, the king is able to, like, get, get his capital city back. So, now he's in charge of the capital city, Right? So he's king again, but there are all these pockets of rebels that are still around, running in parts, in territories of his country where they're trying to kind of run things their own way and kind of, um, kind of, uh, uh, disrespect the authority of this king and try to fight back and take territory back. This is the, the battle that we find ourselves in here, in the battle of spiritual warfare, okay? It's mopping up from here. It's kind of bringing in the rest of this kingdom um, back into control under the king. But he's already been made king. He's already defeated his enemies by taking back the capital city. Okay? That's, the, that's the battle that we are enlisted into that Paul is talking about here in this passage. Okay? So it's a battle that's been won, but these rulers and authorities are not happy about it. And they want to push back and fight against us as much as they can. So what we need to do is we need to stand and fight, just like Paul says, and we need to put on the armor of God. Okay? You can go to the next slide here. Um, this is w- what we need to do, right? This is, seems like an obvious point of application, um, but it's super important that we do it. Okay? Now, let's just look back at the stuff that Paul has said and kind of like reverse engineer from what he said what this actually looks like. Now, for sure, there are lots of instances of, of other encounters with, with, these, with these spiritual forces um, in other books of the Bible, right? Jesus encounters them in his ministry, and in the book of Acts, we see some encounters with them. But Paul seems particularly concerned about several things in particular in this message. And so, um, l- let's just look at what he said here. He said, be grounded in the truth of Christ, okay? Believe that you are right with God. Go spread the gospel. Have faith, trust in Christ's salvation, and then no scripture. That's basically all he's told us. This is what it looks like uh, to fight this war, right? This is the, what it looks like to engage in, in spiritual warfare. It's actually, like, not very complex, is it? It's actually kind of a simple thing, right? It's not, very, it's not glamorized in any sort of way, um, even though we, we might sometimes tend to think this is what spiritual warfare must look like, okay? So if we reverse engineer the things that Paul says, we can kind of determine what he's worried about, what he thinks this, the strategy or the um, intention of these spiritual forces are against us. And, and the big thing, I, I think, is just, like, he wants us to distrust God, right? He wants us to, to, to not have faith. He wants us to, to, to feel, like, doubt or, like, we can't trust God and that we're going to be blown about, all right? Now, that's actually, like, the oldest thing that the first time we ever read about Satan, this is what we read that he's doing. This is in all the way back to Genesis 3, right? The serpent in the garden comes to Adam and Eve, and and he's trying to get them to distrust God, right? He's like, hey, why don't you eat this fruit? And, And they're like, well, we're not supposed to eat this fruit because, you know, God says it will be better for us if we don't. And he's like, oh, you don't really believe God, do you? And he convinces them to distrust God. And that's, like what, that's where the fall comes, right? It's from distrusting God 
and kind of going off and in that distrust, right? Kind of like um, sabotaging the relationship between um, Adam and Eve and God. This is what his goal was at that time, right? And it seems as if that's what Paul was worried about for us too. He just cares that we trust God, that we can find some um, hope or some um, grounding in God himself. And if you don't believe that, like, that's an important thing, um, so, like, you guys have heard about the, the Russian hacking of the, uh, the U.S., uh, the Russian government's hacking of our election, right? And, like, their big goal wasn't necessarily, it seems like, to necessarily get, you know, one thing to happen or another. They just wanted to kind of create chaos through us not being able to believe anything and distrusting all of these institutions, like our government and the media and all these different things. And it just created mass chaos in our country, and it still is, and it probably will again here in, in like a year, right, when we have this next election, okay? This is Satan's goal as well. He realizes the chaos and the disorder um, that can come when we are not able to trust God, and it seems like that's his, his primary strategy for us. And so the, the thing that we're called to do is to put on this armor in these specific ways so that we can stand against it. Now, here's something else about, uh, about war is that it's, or it should be at least, a team sport, right? Like, like war is fought with armies. It's fought with groups of people who are working together to push back against their enemy, okay? The Roman legions fought in units, and they had kind of mastered it. And I remember I talked earlier about the way in which these, um, these lines of, of shields would create this wall against the enemy, working together to fight against them. I think Paul expects us to do the same. All right? And so we can help encourage the faith of others in our midst. Right? We can remind each other of our righteousness in Christ. We can um, learn to use the weapon of the, of the Spirit well together. We can learn to read Scripture so that it becomes effective for us together. All right? And it matters, that I think, that we do it together because um, by our unity, we're able to spread the gospel. By us loving one another and loving others, something we can't do when we're thrown into chaos because of, of the work of the rulers and authorities trying to dislodge us, um, we can do that together. And that is us winning the battle of spiritual forces day by day. So what we're going to do is we're going to close here with communion, which is, which is us remembering right? Us remembering Christ's body and blood broken and shed for us, which it means that we're remembering the victory of Christ on the cross over the rulers and the authorities, okay? So as, as, we, as we come forward during worship, um, you're all invited to, to come forward today and take part. You don't have to be a member here at Res City in order to do it. Um, remember that even though we're, we're caught in this battle, we're, we're, we're stuck in it, we don't have a choice, much of a choice to be a part of it, um, we don't have to win it either. It's already been won. And we go out and we take part in this struggle um, fueled by Christ's victory over, over the powers and the authorities, okay? So let's, let, let's close in prayer and then let's enter into that time of worship and communion. Father, we thank you that you sent your son um, to die on our behalf, to, to give himself up for us in love um, so that you may defeat these, these, these rebel forces who... who just want to mess everything up for us, God, um, and have been doing that well um, for centuries. Lord, we, we thank you that you have defeated them and you give us that hope. I pray that you would um, not uh, allow us to be severed from our, our trust in you, God, even when things don't make sense, even when we feel, uh, even when we feel dislodged or, or thrown, cast around by doubts, Lord. Um, help us to know that even in the midst of those, even if things don't make sense, we 
can rely on your son who has died and who has risen again uh, for us. And that you are, um, you are with us even in the midst of that. Do not let us be uh, swayed by uh, the, the flaming arrows of the evil one, but help us to, to overcome those um, in love, in, in, in faith, and in trust in you, God. I pray all this in your son's name. Amen.